This podcast is a collaboration between Costard and Touchstone Productions and the Dads from the Crypt podcast. I do consider myself half Vulcan. <laughs> I did draw the line low at having my ears surgically altered. <laughs> Everybody and welcome to another episode of the How Not to Make a Movie podcast. I'm Alan Katz. And I'm Gil Adler. Today we're talking to Roger, a guy named Roger Nygaard. And Roger made uh, a terrific I documentary he did a, a bunch of years ago called yeah, Trek. Right. Yeah. Yes. We actually take turns being different characters, and it helps our, our um, relationship. Yeah, yeah, it does. How's it going out with different people? <laughs> Roger Tricky. tapped into this passion inside the fan base, a fan base, and he's gone on since then to to to. Well, he he's, he was a filmmaker doing various things before then. He had directed a, a couple of small features. He is these days. He's an editor. He 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 earns his bacon cutting uh, curb your enthusiasm. He's he's also cut the office and directed the office. He's he's a super talented guy. But you know the thing that everybody knows him for, for the most part, which isn't fair, is Trekkies because so much more to the guy, wouldn't you say? Oh yeah, you're gonna love this one. This is a really really delicious one. I wanted to start out this conversation uh, with with Roger, with the common link, really, that 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 initially brought us all together. Uh, Scott Nimmerfro, who wrote and produced, uh, among other things, Tales from the Crypt, and, and he did a ton of TV shows. We're putting together a, a whole special episode about Scott that Roger is part of. It's it's coming along. We're putting that together. But we wanted to talk today about Roger because Roger is a filmmaker in his own right and a terrific filmmaker and, and a craftsman in a thousand different ways. Um, but the common link that brought us all together was Scott Nimmerfro. Um, Scott was uh, was part of a, I, I think of it now, a Minnesota mafia. Right. The ice pack. That's the other phrase. <laughs> the ice pack. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, when, when Scott and I wrote together, uh, we put your name into every single thing we, we wrote. Were, were you even aware of that? I know that I was, a, there was a character named after me in one of the episodes of The Outer Limits, I think, but his name was never said aloud. And so it was only in the script. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But hey, one way or the other, you know, it, it got there. We, he put your name into everything we ever wrote. It was hilarious. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, we had a there was always a competition when we were in college and we were making our crazy videos where we would try to uh, outdo each other or out reference each other. Usually the references were not each other's names, but they were Star Trek phrases from the original series because we had all memorized every episode. Huh. It, you guys were Trekkies. Uh, Jim, our friend Jim, was the most Trekkie of uh, all of us. And then Scott and I were sort of uh, Trekkies by association and loved the show. But we also just loved TV in general and science fiction and horror and fantasy and the whole spectrum. We weren't just Star Trek fans. I mean, I loved 
when I was growing up, I watched the Time Tunnel and uh, oh, the Immortal God. and Time UFO and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and you know the list uh, Night Gallery. I loved all these things, and Star Trek was just one of them. Yeah, yeah. I still think of the the uh, Night Gallery pilot as having it's still I still think of it constantly. The uh, that the, whole first season, the whole oh. first season is amazing. The season three is awful. Yeah, because they cut the budgets and changed a lot of the writers and it became sort of, you know, like the third season of Lost in Space where everything just went crazy. Cohen Brothers also came out of of Minnesota. There's what what's in the water there? <laughs> it's it's more in the frozen water. I think everyone's brains get frozen for six months of the year and it forces you what can you, you have to stay inside and you all you can do is think or read or things that or or try to stay alive you know uh by collecting enough food and, and firewood but i guess that has some sort of in, uh, effect on people in terms of an exist for me it was really uh, pronounced in my existentialism obsession where when you're sitting freezing in a room and the whole world outside your window looks like a wasteland, you just think, what is the point of everything? Why do we exist? You know, eventually that manifested in a project, but it what comes along with that is that sense of absurdity and a sense of humor about the absurdity of the universe. And hmm. that's part of it. Scott came from German stock. Your last name is Nygaard. That suggests Scandinavian background. You know, there's it's not... Uh, Ingmar Bergman movies were, you know, had that that grayness seemed, seemed to to create a, a a feeling of what was the point of all this? <laughs> yeah, there's something in that 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 brings it out, I think. But along with it comes a very dry sense of humor, where you have to make fun of your life and the universe, or you go mad. Certainly, that is stamped all over. A movies like Fargo keeps you from right. losing your mind, especially when the sun disappears for several months in the winter. Is is there a a movie that you remember seeing first that made you, I don't know, want to be part of this world? All these movies I would watch with my father, like Mysterious Island, hmm. um, or anything with, that Ray Harryhausen was involved with. Oh, sure. The original King Kong. I used to stay up and watch at midnight. Or I'd usually go to sleep at eight. Our, my bedtime was eight o'clock when I was a, a child. So I, I would set my alarm and wake up at midnight so I could watch Horror Incorporated, which was the local creature feature yeah. where they play old movies and, you know, Dracula and, and Frankenstein movies and, and, I just was obsessed with these monster movies and science fiction and them and the, you know, the, the giant ants and all of these things would, would then creep into my brain and my subconscious. And Scott Nimmerfro and I shared that because that was the local series, you know, horror incorporated and, and, and their uh, creature feature and the creature from the black lagoon. And all of these things came back as when we were then when we met at the University of Minnesota, we would make short little horror spoofs. That was probably the most common creative outlet we had was to do spoofs of uh, how, you know, Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street, which were the popular or the most, you know, current successful movies of the generation when, when we were in college. Were you working in Super 8? 
Originally, eight millimeter, regular eight, eight is where eight, I started. Regular eight. Wow, 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 wow. <laughs> I mean, yes, yes, yes. That that that's how I started. I, the very first movies I ever made when, when I was fifteen and sixteen, yeah, were were regular eight and then super eight and and cutting them together on on that on on the little editing machines with with you know, scotch tape, more or less. Yeah. I've got a picture of me sitting at my desk with my eight mil eight millimeter films and scotch taping them together. And yeah, and because that's what my dad had. My dad had an eight millimeter camera, a Bell and Howell, the same one that Zapruder used to film the JFK assassination. Basically, it was a very popular model. Yeah. And you had to flip over. It was 16 millimeter film that you had to flip over halfway through in the dark. So you had to learn how to do it, you know, do ch change the film in complete darkness otherwise you ruin the whole thing yeah, then you mail yeah, it off yeah. and then they split it down the middle and and splice it into an eight millimeter with a uh, roll with sprockets on one side instead of both sides like 16 yeah. millimeter yeah, yeah, super yeah. super eight was actually beyond my i couldn't even imagine you know because rich people had that <laughs> eventually i worked my way up to super eight like then, cinemascope Oh, well, for CinemaScope for me was three quarter inch video when we got to college. Oh, Imagine, the, you know, you can shoot on video now and the, all the opportunities, the way you could edit so much differently, even though it was linear editing, it was still you can move things around. You could change your mind a little bit, whereas with film, it was much harder. Which of the, uh, the Minnesota mafia moved west first? It was me. I spearheaded it. I got a, an apartment in North Hollywood on Lancashire, huh. which was... 380 square feet wow. it's what, just this tiny place what year is this this is this is uh 85 1985 yeah september of 85 scott came out next and stayed with me and so we were roommates until he got his own place but imagine i mean this is a one room with two couches and the couch was the bed and and that's all and then a kitchen area and then a bathroom the end and <laughs> And, yeah. and we shared that place. <laughs> Sometimes three people were sharing that place. And, you know, as we were just, we didn't know anybody. I I didn't know a single person when I moved out here. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was a common sight to see someone in that, that apartment building, you know, with a shotgun under his coat or uh, drinking uh, malt, cold, malt 45, cold, uh, malt liquor by the pool at 11 a.m., and it was right next to an auto parts store. And so you could hear people banging on their cars constantly. Moving to Los Angeles is sort of a baptism by fire. And you, if you're going to survive the competition that so naturally comes out of such a popular profession, you're, you're going to need to prove yourself. And so it's not the world isn't made of pillows and soft corners. You have to have tools for surviving those sharp edges and all those slings and arrows and and uh, knives being thrown at your back that are that are going to come in this business. And uh, not much outrageous fortune. Outrage, but not much fortune. <laughs> Alas. Well, the, the lucky ones, you know, are very fortunate, right? You hit, you're looking for that home run or at least a bunt to get to first base so you can work in the business. And, you what know, Scott was, and I and our friends slowly did that. Yeah. What, what was your first? Uh, all right. So you're out here. You don't know anybody. You're living, man in a hell hole in a hellish part of town. Uh, all right. So your, what was your battle plan as, as you, as you hit, as you hit the ground? Well, I, I've always, you know, I've never half-assed anything. I always did my homework in school, you know, got straight A's 
not that bright, but I work hard. And so that was my superhero strength is I'll work harder than anybody. That, that's what I'm thinking. You know, there's always room for a good quality person, even, you know, no, no matter how tight the job market is. That was my hope. My hope. What, so, what, what skills were, were you were you bringing in? And what did you think you were selling? Uh, someone who is reliable. You can okay. count on that person. Okay. If you give them a task, you don't ever have to worry about it again. That kind of thing, <clears throat> but which is <clears throat> the but Midwestern. Yeah, but, but you weren't breaking into just any business here. You came to Los Angeles to, to break into one particular business. Yeah, I wanted to make movies. I wanted to direct a James Bond movie or you know something like that. And, and you know, no small goals. Right. And but you know, how, I don't, how do you do it? You don't really know. You just know you need to get out there and, and get get into it somehow. Get get into the swim of the river. So I, in my small apartment, I stuffed envelopes. Literally, almost a thousand. About and it was about nine hundred and fifty uh, resumes that I mailed out to every single name. I got the, the the book listing all the production companies in Los in Hollywood. And and a lot of those I didn't realize were just some guy at a house, you know, who wasn't going to hire me. It's all about timing, right? And the shotgun approach, if you're, uh, my resume arrived the day that somebody was had put in their notice at one place. So I got a call. I got about a one out of 100 response rate. So if I'd only sent out a hundred letters, I may not have he heard from anybody. Eight or nine phone calls that led to three meetings and two job offers. And then I took one, which was as the runner or messenger for Rollins, Joffe, Mora, and Bresner who had a deal on the Paramount Pictures studio lot. So I suddenly was introduced to the life, what it's like at a studio, uh, working at a company with producer managers who had a production deal. And so then I started observing and learning and th things I could never have learned any other way. What were what was some of the most surprising things about the business as you, as you, as your eyes began to grow wide? How much failure there was. Yeah. These successful guys I worked for couldn't get a movie made huh. <laughs> for, for years and years. They were they were pitching and, and and hiring writers, and they had a production deal based on their their clients. They're, they had very you know the clients were luminaries. They had uh, David Letterman, Woody Allen, Martin Short, Robin Williams, and Billy Crystal were the big five, and then other up and comers like Jim Carrey and J Jimmy Brogan. Um. Uh, uh, what's his name? Um, Markowitz, uh, who wrote Good Morning Vietnam. I forget his first name. Stu, Stu Silver, who wrote Throw Mama from the Train. Hmm. Good Morning Vietnam was the one they finally got off the ground. Robin Williams was ice cold at the time. He was set to star in it. It was written for him. Mitch Markowitz, that's the writer's name. He was a TV writer who Larry Bresner helped develop this idea for Robin Williams based on a treatment that they optioned by this guy who had been to Vietnam. And they completely changed the treatment into this comedy story about, you know, a DJ in Vietnam. Paramount passed, and then they took it to Disney. And Disney said yes. You know, Robin was ice cold because he had just done um, uh, four or five bombs in a row, culminating wasn't Popeye in Club, Club, Club Paradise was the most recent. Uh, do you even remember Club Paradise? Uh. <laughs> no, Yikes. but it had an all-star cast, everybody from SCTV every, and Robin Williams starring. And it was it was just awful. And and Robin couldn't get anything. And but Good Morning Vietnam was, you know, did 140 million, I think, and relaunched Robin Williams career. And then 
these, you know, kept these guys in business. And then they got throw mama from the train mm-hmm. made. And then the burbs and Billy Crystal was attached to star in the burbs. And then Billy dropped out and, um, they were going to sue Billy for dropping out, but then they got Tom Hanks instead, which was as good or better at the time. So anyway, I was watching these producer managers, how they worked in the business. And um, uh, their biggest lesson I learned from them because they're managers was how to say no, because they had to say no to a lot of projects in order to pick the the one that they, you know, what are you going to put your money on? Which stock are you going to pick? You want to pick the stock that's going to go up in value, not the one that's going to reduce your own value by association. And that's what they were trying to do in terms of building careers for their clients and ultimately for themselves as managers. You were getting really, man, you you could not get take that from a book. <laughs> no. Well, all right. So in watching them struggle to get movies made, you were still, you know, that that became your ambition ultimately to, you know, to get your own movies made. You you were writing stuff at this time, imagining stuff. You're 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 you're, you're, you're yeah. getting into the grind of of uh, yeah, coming up with stuff, pitching stuff, writing stuff. I was writing scripts. Scott Nimmerfo was writing scripts. We were sharing each other's scripts and getting you know reactions from each other. One of the beautiful things about getting a job like I did working for this company is that all, tons of scripts came across my desk every day because they would submit scripts for us to read for the clients of the company and hoping we would like it and pass it on to Billy Crystal to consider as a project. And so I read every script that came across my desk and I started to notice patterns of the successful ones, which later I much later learned was the three act structure, which no one had taught me in college that there's a formula that works for writing successful movies. And it's not a formula that the studios dictated. It's just the way that human beings like their stories told to them ever since Aristotle, you know, in the poetics, realized this and first articulated, you know, the the Greeks, when they were telling stories, you know, people like their stories told with a hero and an enemy and then obstacles and goals. If you don't have these things, you're going to lose your audience fast. Right. And so I started to just by osmosis, by reading a lot of scripts. This has been this is simply what this is how we like it. It's just our nature. Ascension Scott, then when Scott got the job working for Richard Donner, he same thing. All these scripts are passing over his desk. They were coming in for the Donners and for the silver for for silver and and um, for for Hill. And he's reading everything and absorbing and writing. And our early scripts are terrible. They're awful because we didn't it hadn't we had no mastery yet. We had you know a beginnings uh, uh, of talent and practicing what we had, getting better and better. And and so you have to immerse yourself in the business and in if you're going to write screenplays, you have to read a lot of screenplays and look at why they work. What is the like, if you want to be an architect, you have to understand the structure of a house. Mm-hmm. That's where the beauty comes from. You know, my real estate agent always you know would say, oh, this place has great bones. Well, yeah, that's because it has a good substructure. And that's where the beauty comes from, not from the ornamentation hmm. that you hang on to it. People make the mistake I noticed in working for the uh, later in my career when I started working for comedy showrunners. People often made the mistake of this isn't funny enough. We need to punch it up. We need to make the jokes funnier. 
And the way Larry David approaches a scene is he doesn't try to make write funnier punchlines, although they do that. He looks at there's something wrong with our premise. How do we make our premise funnier? He'll look at the setups. He's, we spend more time fixing setups on Curb Your Enthusiasm than we do trying to think of a funnier punchline. Because all comedy comes from the situation you create. If you create a funny situation, funny jokes will naturally come out of that situation. And so th that's a lesson I learned from Larry David and, mm -hmm. and Sasha Baron Cohen mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Dave Mandel and Alec Berg. Um, and, that, and so that's what I sort of downloaded into my book, Cut to the Monkey, about what, everything I learned about comedy. I finally you know, coalesced into a book and tried to share it with, with in mind, uh, filmmakers and young filmmakers who, when I, if only I had this guidebook when I started out, yeah. I would be that yeah. much further ahead. It's, that was my mentality title. in writing the book. It, it, it's a great title. Cut to the Monkey is, is a fantastic title for, uh, for, for your book. I, I, I have not read it yet. I, I, I would love to. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna oh, you're going to love it. I'm going to buy myself a copy <laughs> and I'm going to insist that you sign it, Roger. It's going to change your life forever. <laughs> you know, one observation I'll make, if you think about it, you know, your success has gone through from passion, starting with a passion and perseverance. And it seems to me a lot of us learn that along the way that in, the, in our business, especially, it's about passion initially and then having the perseverance to take all the slings and arrows, as you mentioned earlier, of rejection. And I think, you know, what you're describing so far to our audience is really about that. Do you have the passion? Do you have the perseverance to continue? And while you're doing that, learn. And you're going to find this is common amongst all or many of the successful people yeah. in the business. I was just speaking with Ken Burns for my next book about making documentaries. And he said the almost the exact same thing that when he started out, he decided I'm going to work harder than anyone else. And he kept a book. Uh, two th giant three ring binders on his book of all the rejections he got from people from his first documentary, Brooklyn Bridge, the, about the Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah. And yeah. he said people would look at him and laugh, go, oh, you're trying to sell me the Brooklyn Bridge, are you, kid? <laughs> and, and make fun of him. And no one would buy it. But he finally got it made oh, and it won an Academy Award and <laughs> launched his career. And, and he, he says he, he still to this day feels like he works. He, he tries to work harder than anyone else. And it's never that's who he is. The analogy that I, I like to think of is is cake and icing. The cake is what's important. And but there are people who will obsess obsess over the icing, which is OK, it's important <laughs> what, what the cake looks like. Right. If it tastes like shit, <laughs> even the prettiest icing is not going to make that an enjoyable piece of cake. So, yeah, worry about the cake. Yeah, the icing is important, but the cake is everything. Yeah, yeah, right. It's, what's the substance? What's the subtext? And this is something I learned in my documentary making is great documentaries have a theme at its core, at its base, which is an idea, a premise, a concept, a grievance, something that the filmmaker wants to get across to the audience through the telling of the story, utilizing these people, these real people to tell the story. And if you don't know what your theme is when you start out making a documentary, that's sometimes where filmmakers go astray. And they're—I don't know how to edit this together. I don't—they—they uh, they run out of gas halfway through, or they don't finish it, or it ends up just being a meandering film. Whereas a documentary, just like a narrative, 
needs a three-act structure. Ideally, yeah. to hold an audience, the best way to hold an audience is to set up a mystery at the beginning, mm. some kind of, of idea or mystery that you're going to solve by the end of the documentary, which will keep people watching until the end because they want to see what you know re the resolution is. And sometimes it's a, there are built-in endings like the, the verdict, the jur a jury's verdict, or who's going to get selected to go to the majors, and will the guy get re be released from prison? Will they get married or not? You'll see in reality shows, they've co-opted that in a sense and, and made it a game show, basically. Who's going to win at the end? Who will get voted off the island? But it's the same principle. You, you have uh, your documentary subjects have, have kind of, well, you, you've, you've asked big questions where uh, can you really answer that mystery? You know, the meaning of life. Uh, <laughs> meaning of marriage in essence you know how, how to succeed in marriage but before we'll 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 get to your your documentary work having worked at the the Rollins Jaffe office you understood independent filmmaking and and that was kind of your first forays you you made a, a little independent movie called are. High Strung okay so you've been holding the puppy and he's so cute For that one little second in time you really love him and you give him a squeeze but he's so cute. He just want to squeeze him a little harder. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. There's a direct tie-in between love and wanting to kill something. That's my first feature length. Yeah. After years of lots of short films. Yeah. But, you know, that's the, the brass ring, right? You want to make a feature film as a filmmaker. Every filmmaker trying to make a feature. And I had written many screenplays, none of which had gotten produced feature screenplays. But I met a writer named Steve Odekirk, who was a comedian. Scott Nimmerfro introduced me to him because when, when Scott used to work at the comedy store, he met a lot of comics and he and they would send him his screenplays when he got this development adjacent job working for Richard Donner. And Scott said, hey, there's this low budget comedy that we're not going to do it. No one's going to do it. Do you want to you should read it. So I read it and I, I laughed my ass off. Uh, Steve Odekirk wanted to direct it himself. And I said, look, what if I can raise the money? Let me direct it. You'll star in it as you're planning to do. And he, he thought, oh, OK, sure, go ahead. Thinking this, you know, it's not going to happen. And I found a guy with money who said yes, who read the script and laughed. A rich person. You know, it's about talking rich people out of their money, basically. The fil filmmakers, successful filmmakers have to know how to talk rich people into writing checks. <laughs> and so I did. And we made it for about $350,000. And it starred Steve Odekirk, and um, it it got released barely as an indie film through a very tortuous torturous process that was disappointing and challenging and hard on everybody. But it got out there and found a, a core audience. Um, did film festivals, but didn't really uh, make a big splash or launch my career. You know the way that like Sex Lies and Videotape did for Steven Soderbergh. For instance, right, and but that's like winning the lottery. You can't you can't count on winning the lottery. So you have to slog forward and okay, what's next? Got to do something else. What am I going to do next? And I got a job in TV, working uh, f kind of off of that. Uh, an agent hip pocketing me did a hip pocket agenting job for me, which I don't know for if, in, in non business listeners. That's when an agent sort of takes you on unofficially, and sometimes will help you out or support you or send you leads. And I got a job working directing segments as a segment director for a comedy show on Fox um, called Haywire, which was it tied for dead last in the, the ratings of that year. 
kind of proud of the fact, along with this show by David Lynch, that was all just images, no dialogue. It was like these visual essays. If you can mm. imagine that on a network, and it was wonderful, but nobody watched it. Mm. And my show that I worked on was replaced, the same slot, that half hour comedy slot was revamped and became the Ben Stiller comedy show. Um, but anyway, that helped got me to the next rung, right? You're just going from one rung to the next. And eventually I wrote a screenplay with Scott Nimmerfro called American Yakuza 2 back to back. And it was an assignment from a company called Neo Motion Pictures. And they allowed us to submit pitches because they had optioned a script I had written many years ago called The Dog of the South based on the Charles Portis book. I had optioned his book, read his book, loved it. Charles Portis, of course, wrote True Grit, and um, which is what you can see the the Coen brothers with a similar dry sense of humor li liked True Grit and remade it. But they liked that script, and I, so that just got me in the door. They so they liked the work that Scott and I did for our pitch, so we got the job of writing the script, and so that led to my second project, directing a feature film for Overseas Film Group, which is just designed for foreign sales. Mm -hmm. And Robbie Little just said to me, I just need, I need five action set pieces. Give me that. That was all he basically cared about. Right. Then he could sell it. He could, he could make his trade. His guys could make their trailer, go to the AFM, make pre-sales based on some cast. And it, the film did very well for them. It cost them um, about 2.2 million to make and grossed about six or 7 million. So that's, that's what they're looking for, you know, yeah. singles and doubles in a foreign sales uh, company like that, because a lot of that is pre-sold, right? They're, they get the money for the budget in advance. Um, and so, th but that didn't launch me into the stratosphere either. So what's the next handhold? Just looking, just need to be creative every day. But mm -hmm. I had met Denise Crosby, an actress through I, uh, High Strung. I had cast her in a role in High Strung and over lunch, she pitched me the idea of doing a documentary about Star Trek fans. Right. And I said, oh, great. I can't believe no one's done it. We should do that. And, and that and, was, so, so the, originally the idea came from, from Denise Crosby. Yeah, and, but, and, but and a lunch we had. The right person. Well, she mentioned it to somebody who doesn't, doesn't fuck around, who doesn't yeah. half-ass things. And so right. if I say I'm going to do something, it fucking gets done, you know? And it, but, <laughs> it may but, not be a mil million-dollar deal, but it'll get done. Right, but, but you asked the essential question, why hasn't anybody done this? <laughs> it seems and, so obvious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, right. And, and Trekkies is really a lovely piece. It's... I, I, as far as I can tell, it's the first movie that that recognizes the fans for who they and what they really are, which is a lovely group of people. They're no one had made a fan documentary, a feature fan documentary before us. We sort of launched a genre. It's the yeah. grandfather of, yeah. of fan docs, which yeah. became an industry unto itself. But it was not the first fan documentary ever because i had been influenced by a documentary i had seen years before when i was watching crazy stuff i loved it when when videotape finally came out and you could get vhs tapes i found a documentary called mondo elvis and it was a short film it's only 30 minutes long mondo means world right world of elvis mm. And it just featured these crazy, obsessed Elvis fans who believed he was still alive or believed they were, had, were carrying his baby or 
there it was hilarious because they're so dead serious about their obsession and that's what trekkies became a portrait of obsessed people obsession which is really funny if you're outside of it anytime people get really serious about something if you're not a part of that group it's funny to yeah. watch and i replayed that that ethos in the nature of existence where i'm profiling all these different religions if you're a part of a religion all your rituals are really important and dead serious but if you're not a part of that religion and you see somebody doing their rituals, it looks ridiculous. It's ooga booga. <laughs> what, what, what are you doing? What is what the what is that crazy costume you have to wear? Yeah. Or, or else, uh, Invisible Man is going to get angry if you don't wear the right the uh, uh, serape or hat or gown. I have this, I guess, within me compassion for my subjects. Um, I, I apparently I'm not a sociopath because I do like my my subjects and I like people. I love people. I love humanity. Mm. Mm. Uh, it's individual people we hate, right? He, I love humanity, but I hate people. That's usually how it goes. But I try to make a film that the people who are in it can watch and enjoy just as much as the people who are outside of it. So you can laugh at it or with it both. It's really like a Rorschach test. It's what's in you, you'll see, because I'm not telling you this is funny or crazy. I'm just saying, here it is. What do you yeah. think? And through juxtaposition, I can make things funnier or more apparent. You, but I really are, try to avoid taking a position of what's good or bad. You are letting the people in, in their context speak entirely for themselves. And <clears throat> within their context, they're they're utterly normal and, in fact, <laughs> quite genuine and authentic and and their passion is organic and i would even having just rewatched trekkies but, but before we talked and and it's really yeah your your empathy for your subjects is is there in every single frame you you not for two seconds are you ever mocking them ever not even remotely <clears throat> in in fact you know it becomes quickly clear that you you almost you enjoy their passion as much as they enjoy their passion i do i love it and that's what draws me back and i believe making a documentary is sort of like trying heroin once it's addictive you can't oh, i'll just try heroin once what's the big deal uh -huh. i'll try doc making a documentary once i'll make this trekkies thing once and then move back to this other stuff i like no it's I, that became Going forward, documentaries became my my most valued uh, pursuit uh, from that point forward. As, as a narrative form. As a way of expressing expressing myself creatively in a format, in a motion picture format, which uh, I wish they had a stronger narrative, though, I'll be honest, because I, I make, I think there's two kinds of documentaries. There's two kinds of people in the world, right? But there's narrative documentaries like hoop dreams where you're following people sure or brother's keeper or take you know these people have the problem are they going to solve it how will it end and then there are concept documentaries like food inc mm -hmm. which ask big questions why is corporate food so harmful for us to and so and and answering that question by the end or uh, the social dilemma why is social media so harmful to people and what can we do about it 
that's the premise and the question they ask at the beginning and that by the end they give an answer what we've been waiting for we're hungry for the answer to this and i do that i've i've done this those are harder to make and for some masochistic reason that's what i like to do is i like to take a premise or a question the more impossible to answer the question the more challenging the more intrigued i am by it because after taking on existentialism how do you make a documentary about existentialism i mean what hubris to think I can do what Schopenhauer labored his whole life or, or you know, Kant or Locke or Hume you know, or Camus. Apparently, you, you can take the Nygaard out of Scandinavia, but you cannot take the Scandinavia out of the Nygaard. It's innate in, in those cold weather countries yeah. to, to become immersed in existentialism. But I, try, you know, I took it on and made a documentary and asked the question, why do we exist? And found an answer for myself by the end. 450 and, hours of footage, 175 <laughs> interviews. That's yes. what that's what you you that's a massive amount of of material to have to stew down into it's a it's a, an hour and, and yeah. Hour. 90 minutes, 93 yeah. minutes. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 crazy. It's idiotic to take on a task like that. So the 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 doing of the task has to be the point of the task, not the completion. In other words, the journey, right? It's the journey, not the arrival. How you have to enjoy take, the how, journey. How, how, how long did the Trekkies project take to finally get from when you started to when you finally, okay, there's the, there, there's the cut, I'm done. Trekkies was, was like a exocet rocket. It was nine months from shooting our first footage wow. to, to a final cut. It went so fast because the footage was so rich. We had a movie very quickly, as you can imagine. We, you, know, you go to a convention, we could film anybody, and they were all so colorful that we quickly had a, had a movie of some kind, a deeply flawed movie, because it does not have that consistent narrative arc that a documentary is supposed to have. Yeah. Nevertheless, it held attention, apparently, for 90 minutes. And if even though our film is so flawed... Everyone copied those flaws going forward because it became the paradigm for success for fan documentaries because it was so successful financially and critically. And, you know, it bought my house. It was a huge success, um, even though it had all these flaws. Film can succeed even though it doesn't follow the rules. If you were to go back in and, all right, knowing what you know now, having, you know, having the experience you know now, if you were to go back and, and remake Trekkies, how would you refocus it it should be like denise crosby goes on a journey with a, a quest or a goal or finding two or three or four specific star trek fans and watching them live out their day or go or, or whatever it is they're do, going to a convention or setting up a convention something goal oriented that they need to succeed at that's very challenging that's the proper way to do it but it wouldn't have been trekkies it wouldn't have been what it is, and it, it's really, I think it's charmed in it in in the unusual quality of what it is, and because we were so naive about what we were doing. The fans, they they really are remarkable. I I, I just six months ago, I I'd never been to a, a, a horror convention at all ever. Uh, and uh, I, I went to one with, with Jason Stein, who is one of the executive producers of our podcast. He's one of the dads from the crypt. And I found the experience enlightening. The, 
the the crowd of people it was a smaller one it, you know it was basically people sitting at tables and lots and lots of people selling merch all kinds of uh, merch and lots and lots of people dressed up cosplay I, there was the thing that just blew my mind was a she couldn't have been more than five and she was she had a, a, a custom made Leatherface costume right down to a a, a, a size appropriate size appropriate uh, 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 chainsaw and, and you know and and her her mom had obviously worked very hard on this costume and and here's the weird thing about horror conventions nobody ever does cosplay or dresses up as any of the victims everybody dresses <laughs> up as the monster right yeah and, the villains we love yeah. the villain good villain yeah yeah it, it's the, it, yeah everyone people are, are, are not usually there to sign autographs of, of people who died in the movies. Yeah. Some people will die, but it's not, it's not, uh, it's really, it's the monsters. They love the <laughs> monsters because the monsters are empowered. And I, I think what I found, which was su surprising and, and enlightening, and I was thrilled to see it for them, that whole fan experience is empowering. It's also a monster is a side of ourselves that we all have that that gets loose and you can let it loose at the convention and it's safe. Why am I here and what is my purpose? Am I supposed to start a family? Fight for some cause? What is the point of everything? Everything created is one thought in the life of God. Boom, boom. And then that developed into, you know, human beings at McDonald's. Man's purpose is to chase women. I think we exist because God created us because he was lonely. The reason we're here on this planet is to eat good barbecue. What is religion for most people, really? It's a social, it's a way to socialize. It's a social experience. Whether you're going to church or temple or, or uh, whatever, that you're going there to talk to people, to meet your friends and listen. Okay, we got to listen to the talk and then it'll be over. Then I can talk to my friends. And conventions are the same aspect of we are social beings and we need to, to socialize and be around people and interact with people. And it gives people a chance to go and interact with others. And sometimes in a way that they feel is more genuine to who they actually are. You know, I went to, like I was profiling Renaissance uh, people, you know, Renaissance fair people in, in one, I did a, a pilot for a TV series based on Ren Fairs. And they said that the people who went to Ren Fairs said, I am myself at the Ren Fair. I'm not myself at the office in my, in my everyday life. There's something as I think of it, and, and I think of, of CreepyCon, which I went to. Yeah, I think there's very definitely something religious about it, but it's not monotheistic, it's polytheistic. And in a sense, there are all these gods and, and, and you know, polytheistic gods are not, they don't lord it over humans. Humans and, and polytheistic gods that kind of walk around together, they're made of the same stuff. And and, and it's, it, it's actually a healthier universe. All right, I'm, I'm leaping forward in, in, into, into the nature of existence, your, 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 your terrific documentary about why, why are we here? Uh, the... I know the answer though now. I learned. I know why we're here. Now I, I've solved it. I, like I moved on to the next mystery. <laughs> okay, what's the next mystery? <laughs> well, after that, it was right when you go to film festivals. There's going to be a Q and A afterward. Yeah, a and so you've got to answer questions. And the, one of the invariable questions is, "Oh, what are you working on next?" Of and course. so you have to be ready for that. And so I came up with a funny answer, 
well, after working on the nature of existence, I had to find something even more inexplicable than, than existence itself. So my next topic is marriage, which get, got a big laugh from people. Well, now, when, when you did Trekkies, did, did, did the world surprise you? I was constantly surprised. Every convention, I was surprised. Every person I met, when we went to their house with them to film them, it was surprising. Then when you did your next documentary, The Nature of Existence, did the world surprise you again? Constantly. I mean, when I went to Israel and, and found a rabbi in Jerusalem, and he was explaining the concept of isness to me. He went on for about a minute explaining what is isness. Mm. And it's by the time he finishes, it's kind of hilarious because it's so such a convoluted way of describing a simple word, isness, of being. Uh, and God is in a state of isness. God is outside of now and is outside of never and is in this this thing called isness. And he was explaining it. And I, I was just like, wow, that's it's so deep. Either I'm really stupid or that's ridiculous. And I can't tell the difference, you know, but I, still I give him the respect, let him make his point. I put it in the movie without, you know, giving it shading it one way or the other. And it's an amazing moment. And that's juxtaposed with the creative, uh, or sorry, with the Christian wrestlers mm. in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, or just in just outside of Atlanta, who put on a passion play in a wrestling ring. And like, what? What am I watching? They they beat the hell out of each other, and then Jesus shows up. The lights turn red, and then Jesus, and then the wrestlers all beg for repentance. And this, you know, people are lapping it up in the audience. And from that, you know, I went to. Uh, China and met Confucianists and Taoists. And I, I ended up pushing a, I met an old woman who must have been 85, who was grinding her own grain, pu pushing this cement uh, wheel around. And so I said, can I, can I try that? Looks, that looks like good eating. So I jumped in and I pushed the, the wheel, you know, the, the grain, the flour grinder with this 88 year old Chinese woman who she couldn't speak English. I couldn't speak Chinese. You never know what's around the corner. That's part of the beauty of making documentaries. It's like it forces you to go out into the world on a journey of exploration. There's so much amazing, so many things to experience in this world. And there's you'll never run out. And when I meet people who are like, I'm bored, it just, I, uh, what? There's so much to see and do and learn. How can anyone be bored? And it's just mind boggling to me. And I guess hopefully my documentaries have that uh, that same enthusiasm for exploration and learning and solving mysteries and and getting to the bottom of okay what is my purpose in life here and 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 uh, or how, how can how, I better get married why am I not married what's wrong with me why can't I hold a relationship together something's wrong if fifty percent of the marriages fail in this country. If I made a product with a 50% failure rate and put it on the market, people would, would run me out of town and say, go back to the, the drawing board. But yeah. for some reason, people are clamoring for this product that, that is going to fail. But they all think, oh, no, not me. It's not, you know, I'm going to be special, but they're not. You know, no. it's the myth of exceptionalism is what the, the, the psychologists call it. Everyone thinks, well, we're exceptional. It's not going to happen to us. Two years later, it's happening to them. And so something's wrong. So I'm going to solve it. And so I've solved basically found answers to what's going on psychologically. There are explanations for yeah. why we have these problems. And it's all solvable if you just learn. And, and if you open yourself up to, to 
learning or understanding you don't know i don't know all the answers but they're out there and i can find them and so that's that's what i do and it's a constant one constant surprise after another did doing the nature of existence change the way that you thought about the world what did you walk in into that before you started it how did you think were, were you uh, oh radically yeah i was depressed i was depressed and 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 dis dispirited and disoriented and it was to me there was three times in my life i'll tell briefly the first time when i was around i don't know seven or eight or nine around the time I discovered cameras, but I, uh, in Minnesota, it was in the winter. I remember vividly walking out onto the frozen lake and laying down and looking up at the stars. And I felt like I was certain I was going to die. And it's because I had read in our, I'd gotten into our encyclopedias. I was, I love reading in, in the encyclopedia and I came upon diseases, you know, and, oh, and geez. there's, and I was reading about diseases and I was certain that I, I had a terminal disease because, you know, the symptoms were, uh, constant fatigue and coughing. And it's like, I'm coughing sometimes and I'm always tired and, oh no, I'm good. So I went out, laid down to die, looked up at the stars and pretty soon I was getting cold and hungry. I said, well, I better go in and have dinner. I didn't die. And, but it, it opened an idea of my own mortality, which at some point as a child, you eventually realize you're not this permanent being, which you assume you are from the beginning. Somebody dies. And when my father died, when I was 13, multiple sclerosis which was a horrible way to go you know multiple years of fading away until he was uh weighed you know a, a third of what he normally he was down to probably you know 60 pounds 55 pounds just bones and skin and couldn't speak and it, with multiple sclerosis sometimes you die by uh drowning and you're the fluids in your lungs and it's just you can't move and awful and when he died i asked um, the minister at our church, I don't, something I don't get, because everybody has all these platitudes when someone dies, you know, he's gone to a better place, blah, blah, blah. It's like, really? What's better? Uh, here's what I don't get. What version of him is in this heaven? Is it the version I last saw of him where he couldn't speak? Is he going to be incapacitated for all eternity? Or is he transformed into a, a vibrant version? And well, we just don't know. You know, we can't question. Why can't we question? I want, to, we should be able to know these things. And so, well, he's going to be transported. You know, we all get transferred to an earlier version of our best version of ourselves. Our best version. Okay. Well, what if a baby dies? Is a baby suddenly transformed into an 18 year old? And, and who chooses his major? It's like, it makes no sense. Yeah, yeah, None yeah. of this makes sense. And they, they don't have answers because really, the more you poke at religious, belief the less it's about answers and it's really about here are these mythologies just take them and believe them because you'll feel better it's a code for living that'll help you feel better but as science has progressed over the ages science has explained things that we didn't understand before you know thunder and lightning used to be the gods were angry at us now we know it's electrons moving from one valence level to another the end and so god's uh territory has gotten smaller and a smaller and smaller slice as science has, has increased and so a lot of you know, religions are pushing back and trying that's why you see a lot of resistance to science and anti-science because it's the enemy right it's it's eliminating religion the third point for me of which when i questioned existentialism was when 9-11 when everyone our entire country watched three thousand or so people die on television 
And it made, we had to, as a country for that week or moment, or as long as we could until we could shove it under the carpet again in our brains, realize and consider my life is impermanent. Their lives were impermanent. You know, they had video of people leaping out of windows of the twin towers before they fell. And it's, you, you can never forget that and how you felt in that moment, because it makes you think about yourself. That could have been me. And someday that's going to be me. And that creates this huge anxiety. And and how do you deal with that anxiety? And so we have you know, shrinks and drugs and, and diversions mm-hmm. and uh, video games, anything to forget about our own mortality. So I set out on this, my journey, which it was to solve for myself, what is the point of existence? And while I make the documentary, the viewer goes with me and you learn what I learn. And my process for answering that question for myself, why do I exist, was to go and meet representatives of every major religion and scientists and atheists and ask them all to explain it. And then I juxtapose all their answers in the documentary. Um, and if, if you want, I'll tell you what I learned. Um, Go for it. I'll, yeah. need, I'll need two more minutes of this diatribe to tell you. <laughs> that, that's what we're here for. <laughs> just, this is where I arrived in my search for meaning. Spoiler alert. <laughs> I'm going to spoil it for you. Here's the answer that I found. When we ask the question, why do we exist? Why do I exist? Usually what we're saying is, I'm not happy enough. How can I be happier? And how do I find happiness? And Julia Sweeney refocused that for me when I interviewed her. And she said, that's the wrong question. Happiness is not a goal. It's a side effect of pursuing your purpose in life. Because once you know your purpose, then you'll be happy when you're pursuing it as a natural side effect. And so the problem is you don't know your purpose. You're not aware of it in any way. So how do you find your purpose? Well, no one can give you a purpose. You have to give yourself a purpose. It comes from within. And <clears throat> the answer is natural, really, because the universe that we are a part of is made of protons, electrons, neutrons, quarks, etc., uh, planets and stars, and it's all interlocked and interchanging. And you've got stars that are being born and stars that are dying at the same time. It's this yin and yang of creation and destruction. Those are the two antipodes opposites of our universe. Uh, there's uh, there's opposites of everything. As we are a part of this, and from getting to this answer required um, a logical basis, not a religious one, although it works for a religious basis too, because you can believe that creation is good and destruction is bad, or the devil. And so you can align yourself with either pole in life. You can create or you can destroy. It's easier to destroy, to tear things down, to be critical, to criticize others, to smash things. It's much harder to build things, to create. But that's where the joy, the real joy comes from, from creation. So if you align yourself with creation, you are going to naturally be happy or much happier than you would be if you align yourself with destruction, which may give you a brief pleasure in the moment, in this orgy of destruction, but it will lead to less happiness ultimately. So what does that mean? Being creative. What does that mean to be creative? Well, it means bringing forth some new synthesis of ideas or thoughts or material. You could like write a short story, make a podcast, write a book, write a poem, make a new dance. 
um, create a, a drawing, an architect for a, for a house, uh, design a new business plan, organize your garage. You're bringing Another order tracking. out of chaos. Anything that brings order out of chaos, that creates something new, that you can show your social group. Planting a garden brings forth life. It creates. For most people, the default setting is to create a new version of ourselves, a small version that we hope will grow up and be a better version of who we are. And then that occupies people's attention for 18 years or however long it takes to get them to move out of the basement. And then you're back where you started going, what's my point now? And that's why you see a lot of retirees or people when the children have left taking classes and relearning things or learning things like pottery classes or painting classes or their swing dance. They're, they're taking creative endeavors. They're getting back to the pursuit of creativity. And so if you create, you will be happy while you're creating. So if you have a job that's not creative, if you're moving papers from, from one tray to another and you can't wait until it's over, try to find time every day to be creative. Keep a journal, write your poem, paint, do something that you love inherently where you enjoy the journey. Do it a little bit each day and you'll be contributing to your purpose and then when you finish it, you share it with your social group and you get feedback and it, 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 you have interaction with people. That's the meaning of existence is to find your purpose. to, And it's a creative one to be creative daily in some way. That is the product of 450 hours, 175 interviews. It is it is not just you are not pulling that out of your ass. <laughs> That's a shot of, of, of uh, existentialism espresso distilled down from all those interviews. <laughs> all right. So so that's what you learned about the nature of existence. Uh, as you walked into the truth about marriage, you you never talked <laughs> at least I, I, you, you ever talked about your your relationships? Yeah, well, I failed miserably, obviously, because I'm not married. And that was what, why I started wondering what's wrong with me. Is it me? And, and, and it must be because I'm the one common variable among all of my failed relationships. I mean, I got close to marriage three times, at least in my mind. I was talking or thinking about or envisioning myself married to the person I was dating. and it. But it ended up breaking up, did not happening uh, for various reasons, different reasons each time. But my new obsession became what's wrong with me? What's wrong with marriage? What's wrong with relationships? They don't give you a, a, there should be a class in high school teaching us how to have good relationships because it's arguably the most important thing we'll ever do in our lives is choose a life mate. But there's there's no guidance. It's like, okay, you're graduated. Go figure it out on your own. You know, trial and error, which is a lot of error and, and unhappiness and heartbreak and hurt feelings, and which leads to therapy and marriage counseling. And so I, I did use my same technique. I got a, dozens of marriage therapists and and psychologists and anthropologists and social scientists and interviewed them all and asked them to explain to me what's wrong with this model we all know the statistics marriage rates are down divorce rates are high and over time people become more and more dissatisfied in their relationships why are relationships so hard for people 69 percent of problems that couples struggle with are perpetual problems we call each other the work in progress it's pretty much what our marriage has yeah, been it is a work in progress i do the work and she makes the progress yeah 
How much are people cheating on each other sexually? 10% of children don't belong to their father, on average. Are you allowed to get a massage with a happy ending? Would that be cheating? <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm not, uh, but I'm not. Oh, I think if you asked, I would say yes, you can do that. I think if you were in Thailand Are and you, you said... Are you kidding me? I was just in Thailand. <laughs> I know, I know. You didn't ask. You should have asked. If you'd asked... Almost 0% of engaged people think they are ever going to get divorced. Women's criteria for what they find attractive in men changes depending upon where they are in their menstrual cycle. Couples should go off the pill for at least a year before they make any long-term commitments because they might not be compatible. How did you get Jordan to commit to you? Uh, I told him he could do whatever he wanted with anybody else. That broke me. She ran. I chased her. She caught me. Who's the boss more often than not in a relationship? Women. The woman. Women. I have absolute say at the end, but I don't say anything. You have conned us, man. Have conned us into thinking we're on earth for you. You're on earth for us and the kids. And if you do a good job, will keep you alive when you're an old fart. You want the answer to this one too? Yeah, hey, yeah. And the answer, <laughs> as I watch it, seemed to be everything is wrong with the bottle. <laughs> well, we're all doing relationships wrong. Yeah. That's what I learned to some degree. Yeah. But it's not our fault. We are living in a culture that expects us to behave in ways that are out of sync with who we are as a human being. And that happened about 6,000 years ago. There was a split when we switched from being nomads, living in small tribes of 130 or fewer, to discovering agriculture and now living in one place. And then these communities growing much larger, eventually becoming cities where we could no longer know everybody in our surroundings. When we lived in this tribal community, everyone knew everybody, everybody shared everything, everybody pulled their weight. And when they didn't, it was obvious. And so those who didn't pull their weight were ostracized or punished in some way until they were brought back into line or kicked out of the club, which it was pure communism, essentially. Yeah, the yeah, natural yeah. state for human beings is communism in small groups. Communism doesn't yeah. work beyond 150 people. Yeah, the, it, because... The the, the historian Yul Harari is a great book called uh, uh, Sapiens, and he talks. Oh, it's about, wonderful. Yeah, he, he, and he and he really talks about exactly what what you're talking about. Really, and we we were successful like that for millions of years. For yeah, well, the then, great the largest part of our history, we were lived very successfully, and it's the agricultural revolution that changes us completely. It messed everything up. Yeah. Uh, Chris Chris Ryan wrote a book called Civilized to Death. Yeah. where he 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 go, he takes this concept even further how we are if you go to, to go to a zoo there's two kinds of zoos right there's the kind where animals are in cages and they look depressed and and despondent and and want ready to die then there's the zoos where they create an environment that's open and natural as close as they can to what's natural for that for that giraffe to live in and they do much better in that environment yeah. we have created for ourselves a version of the caged zoo in our modern society and yeah. that's what we're living in and that's why everybody is more akin to the the baboon who's very unhappy in his cage as opposed to the one swinging through trees in a, in a natural environment so why not create environments that are more in sync with what's natural for us well here's the problem once we expanded beyond small groups, and now there's millions of humans everywhere, we needed a different 
form of society to govern things so we could live in civilization and that became rules and laws and monogamy. Monogamy became the new rule, one person each publicly because in the old days of uh, the tri or the nomadic times, sex was not proprietary. You didn't own your own sexuality, the, the tribe did. So everyone had sex with everybody or didn't didn't hoard it to themselves, even when they partnered up. And it, it, that was natural then. Now it seemed that seems weird and strange because we're used to monogamy. But the thing is, nobody really is monogamous nowadays. At best, they're serial monogamists mm -hmm. going from one to the next and throwing out the old one. You know, if you if we were truly monogamous, we would stay together sexually with the very first person we mated with in high school or whenever it was. But we don't do that. So something is off. And the reason is because that people got jealous. In the agricultural times, some people got richer than others because they got more land and controlled more wealth. And so they started collecting and hoarding the women, which left a whole bunch of young men without women. And if you have young, horny, frustrated men without women, that causes trouble for society. Still so you gotta, does. You, it still does. Incels, man. It's the whole, that's, that's all, that is the root of, well, part of the root of their problem. Part of the solution is monogamy because that, then it's impossible for one person to hoard a thousand. I mean, the pharaohs and the sultans and the kings, they, had, they would have 5,000 concubines. Literally five thousands of concubines. You, you, you remember the movie uh, uh, A Doctor Strangelove? At the end, they're talking about you know how to repopulate the earth, and 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 really, it's exactly thing that the thing that they're talking about. It's hoarding all the women, and and and, and the men can reproduce it with as many as you want to have as much reproduction as possible. It's like it's like squirt and go, squirt and go, squirt and go. That's the way it was for the Sultan. Yeah, and they would keep track of the cycles, so they would only have sex with the fertile women who are ovulating and, and to, to maximize their output. But the problem is when you got 5,000 young men with spears or guns who are very upset, you got a problem. So you've got to find a way to even things out. And even though it's not who we are naturally, it's what we need in order to maintain civilization today. That being the case, monogamy does work and can work for people. It just takes therapy and help sometimes and ways to deal with it and sometimes it's role play or date night or helping each other be satisfied in ways that they're hiding because it's it's sometimes we meet someone even to get married we put on this mask because we put on our best self because we want this person to like us it's pretty hard to hold that mask forever right yeah. there's a polygamous couple that i interview in the documentary and it's in order to make polygamy work it takes total honesty. Yeah. So they know each other to, to a far greater extent they're than a monogamous couple yeah. generally does. And they're, they're, um, they're, they're the most interesting couple in, in the whole piece because of their, yeah, they, they, they seem to have done the most work. They're very high functioning in, uh, couples uh, in terms of their relationship. But, you know, that comes right through being able to be honest about who you are and what you like mm. and not hiding whatever your social preference is, your sexual preference, your desires and needs so that they become met. In the old days when we were nomads, we didn't require one person to meet all our needs. 
Today, you marry someone and they need, you require them to meet all your needs. And it's impossible yeah. to do that. You know, in the old days, in the, one person was a storyteller, one was great at, at oral sex, one was a good hunter, <clears throat> et cetera. So everyone could be satisfied. You know, I need a good story. I'm going to go hang out with, with Grog, the storyteller today. Yeah. I need an orgasm this morning. You know, whatever, whatever you, everyone was sure. uh, who they were. Everyone had when I was interviewing, I, <laughs> I interviewed a, a Native American spiritual leader, uh, a member of the Paiute tribe in the nature of existence. And he told how in the old days when the Native Americans um, in their tribal arrangement, they would have someone like him who was a spiritual leader, who was generally a gay man which they call two-spirited, meaning he would have the spirit of a male and a female in one body. And they saw that as special and given special mystical status. And so this spiritual leader would guide them. Um, and gay people are born into all societies. It's not by choice. You can't stop it. It's about the same percentage. For some reason, Mother Nature decided it's a good thing to have people of this type within a tribe or a society and so native americans just worked it into their culture it's natural it happens okay here it's worked in and that's it's been harder to you know for for gay people in modern society to get worked in when other um constructs generally religious based have tried to impose their structure on well here's a better way to to deal with civilization and so we're constantly, there's this push and pull from all these different angles. And we're, that's why we're constantly at odds with people trying different angles, different things, because we're so far out of what's natural for human beings. Diehard atheist that I am, even a humble atheist can do unto others. I, I, I think that religion, the messages you can, can, can be solid. It's, it's all the rigmarole and the the Michigas, I think that's the technical term surrounding it that, that just that justifies it. I, I I are you truly compassionate if you are nice to people out of fear that you'll be struck down by the invisible God, or are you truly compassionate if you do it because it's innate within you? Yeah, I I I think Paul. I mean, Jesus didn't invent Christianity; Paul did, and, and I think Paul was an absolute genius because Paul, first of all, he was selling a monotheistic idea, a monotheistic God to a polytheistic world. He couldn't sell, don't forget, Paul never met Jesus. He, he has his experience in his head on, on the road to Damascus. And he goes to Jerusalem, tries to sell his version of Jesus to everyone who knew Jesus. And, and their attitude was, well, no, that's not what he said, actually. That, and Paul takes his version out to the Gentiles because no one in Jerusalem is buying. And But that's where Paul's genius takes over because he's selling a lot of Jewish mythology to non-Jews who don't know, well, no, that's not how the mythology works. And the where Paul's genius comes in, real Jesus is of no value to him. Je when dead Jesus is a value, it's Jesus dying and coming back is what Paul is selling. He is, hey, if you will follow this mythology the way that I'm telling you, if you believe in Jesus, how I'm telling you to, right down to the to the grammar, just like Jesus, you can rise from the dead and, and live forever in, in, a, in, a, in a magical place called heaven with everyone you love. And, you know, they, again, a polytheistic world, the polytheistic gods didn't do anything for human beings. 
they, they were really no different. They, you know, the whole thing that monotheism does is, hey, here's a God who will do something for you. If you follow him, he'll give you stuff. He'll make your life better. And then Paul takes it one step further. Hey, and there's a son. And if you believe in him the way I'm telling you, you can beat death. It's genius. But you have to follow the dogma down to, like I said, the grammar. Otherwise, it doesn't work. And hey, if you don't follow the grammar, if, if you don't follow the grammar, you're going to make it harder for me to get to heaven. And so now I'm going to look at you because you're, you're hey, I need, I need all of us to get to heaven for heaven to really work. And the next thing you know, you have strife because, hey, even within the Christian religion, how to get to heaven became conflicted. And well, you know, Paul's was the latest age? rewrite. You know how writers are, they rewrite and they rewrite. And that was his latest revision. And that one uh, caught on pretty well. Yeah, it, 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 it's an intractable problem because it's it's uh, you know, the, the the hey the answer to the question of of the nature of existence is inside every one of our heads and we all perceive it differently. Not one of us can see the world through anyone else's eyes. We cannot experience anyone else's pain and they can't experience ours. It's just not possible. Uh, you know, I, 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 the nature of existence got me thinking, again, having just watched it just <laughs> before this. And yeah, it, it, it made a whole bunch of things pop into my head. We will link to it. Good. I recommend it. Uh, uh, <laughs> I think that one, I think it's for 99 cents or $1.99. I think I, I bought it for $1.99, Roger. I, I put some money in your pocket. That's the best two bucks you've ever spent. Oh my God, yes. Uh, my question <laughs> then is: All right, so and and your your documentary about marriage, which, which I also watched. You know, I, I crammed these things yesterday. That got me thinking a lot about relationships. You you absolutely have have have, have got me thinking. Did did your documentary change the way that you felt about relationships? Did you feel better about your situation? No, much better. Yeah. I mean, well, I just outlined the problem, right? We're out of sync with who we are. The yeah. solution, though, there is a solution, which is very simple. I'll give you the solution in two minutes. That uh, boiling down, distilling down 100 interviews, all of the experts in some way said the same thing, that in order to get along better with your partner, there are certain behaviors that we can do that'll make it better and behaviors that'll make it worse, right? That seems pretty obvious, but what are they? Well, if someone had just told me this in high school, I would have gotten laid so much more. But I had to learn this decades later from all these experts. You know, one of the marriage therapists said that when people come to him, he's he's a specialist in you know in repairing relationships and um, trying to help prevent divorce. When people come to him, it's usually like relationship is broken, and it's like going to the ER and saying. I broke my leg six years ago. Can you fix it? And he's like, why didn't you come when you first broke your leg? Now it's virtually impossible to fix it. We can try to make things better. There are ways, you know, therapies and they'll put you in physical therapy. We'll make it better. But what they advise is if, if anyone listening to this right now is thinking about getting married soon, they all advise the best way you can increase your chances for happiness and longevity in a relationship is through premarital counseling. Some religions force the couple to go through premarital counseling before they are allowed to get married. And they do better than those who don't do it. 
And the reason is it just helps you to know your partner better. It knows you know what you're buying, what you're knowing what the product is. And you need to learn what your partner's core values are. How, what do they think about abortion? How many? How much is too much to spend on a pair of shoes? Do they want kids? How many kids? What religion will the kids be brought up? There's some basic questions, and I put a list of them at the end of the book that I wrote that goes along with the documentary so that, that I collected from these experts. If you just have fun and just ask your partners these questions sometime and, and get to know each other better, you'll have a better chance. Now, let's say you're someone who's listening who's already in a relationship or already married, and the sex is starting to go, you, things are, you're fighting more, things are not as happy as they used to be. There is one thing you can do that has a good chance of helping all that, according to all the experts. This is what we do wrong and can improve things dramatically if we just did this. Yeah. First of all, <clears throat> opposites attract in terms of um, masculinity and femininity. These certain types of what we call behaviors that tend to be masculine dominant or feminine dominant. I tend to be a masculine dominant person. So I would be more, I'm more attracted to someone who's more feminine dominant. And it's the same with gay couples. One tends to be more masculine dominant. One's more feminine dominant. Sure. And it's, you know, there's all sorts of variations on this. And, but in general, you do better attracted to someone who is on the opposite pole of yourself on that spectrum. Signing up for a dating site where you answer a thousand questions about each other is kind of won't tell you really what, whether you're compatible until you meet in person and get a, a feeling for each other because you, you don't want to be the same. You don't want to find a copy of yourself. The idea is not to marry the, 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 the duplicate of yourself. It's to find someone who is the opposite energy in terms of masculinity and femininity. Now, if you're the masculine person, masculine dominant person, try this experiment. You've got nothing to lose. Spend one week. Try this. When you come home at the end of the day, put your iPhone on airplane mode and turn to your feminine dominant partner and say, honey, how was your day? Or honey, how are you feeling? And then shut up. Don't interject. Don't try to fix it. Don't offer solutions. Only offer empathy. And what does that mean to offer empathy? It means just say things like, oh, hmm, aha, oh. It shows you're listening and you're understanding. Oh, that's terrific. Oh, I'm so sorry that happened. Don't start doing, well, why don't you do this? Or you should do that. No shoulds. Don't should bomb your partner. Just listen for 15 to 20 minutes per night. The, the feminine dominant person needs about 15 to 20 minutes of connection, emotional connection per day. It's like an, a, a, an emotional, it's like a vitamin that, that their spirit needs. Or if they don't get it, they'll become frustrated. Yes. Eventually that leads to, anger and then conflict and arguing and oh we got to break up we don't belong together it's not natural to do this it doesn't feel natural we come home and we look at our ipads we watch tv we disconnect from each other but that person that you're with needs 15 to 20 minutes of connection per day just try it as an experiment and it'll the sex will get better the communication will get better you'll enjoy each other more you'll be happier now the feminine dominant person when you're partner is giving you this 15 to 20 minutes of emotional connection, you know, making eye contact, listening, empathizing. Don't get greedy and ask for 30 minutes and 50 minutes and, and two hours and constant connection because as uh, Dr. John Gottman puts it, the ma male brain, masculine brain starts flooding. He calls it, it, it calls it flooding. 
it can only handle about up to 30 minutes of discussion about emotional issues before it just gets overwhelmed. It's not designed to handle that much. It can do about 15 minutes is great. And the the feminine brain, feminine dominant brain can handle much more. It's much better designed in that regard. Mm-hmm. And that's why women like in, in feminine dominant people like to get together and chat and talk, have, you know, coffee clatches and knitting circles, whatever. Uh, but so they can just chatter and talk and connect with each other. The masculine dominant brain, they do things where they don't talk so much. They play golf, they go bowling, they, they go on business trips. They you watch a football they, you know, game. Exactly. We're, we're, and that's how they bond. Hmm. So that's, if, if you can do one thing, just give 15 minutes of, of emotive connection. Now, the reverse thing to understand, if, if you're a feminine dominant listener and you want your masculine dominant partner to be happier and to get along better, understand that what they need is disconnection. Whereas everyone wants to connect, right? And the feminine dominant brain wants constant connection. The masculine dominant brain wants connection also, but once connection is had, then the desire for freedom starts to overwhelm and then disconnection is desired. And, and I got to get out of here. I need to go, you know, somewhere, right? Uh, John Gray in his book, men are from Mars and women are from Venus calls it going to the cave. Once a week, a man has to go to his cave with the garage or the Elks club or whatever it is. So here's the best way. First of all, allow your, your partner to disconnect occasionally and know it's understand it's not, it's natural. Allow it because when when that partner returns, they're renewed with desire for you. Mm-hmm. They that's the, how it, how it's renewed. And if without that disconnection, when you're it's like during COVID nineteen, when all of us were stuck together, it made things harder and harder oh, sure. to disconnect for a while and recharge that battery. So the way final note is the way to do this is announce your disconnection, honey. I'm going golfing with my friends on Sunday at eleven a.m but I can't wait to come home and see you uh, for dinner at 7 p.m. So you've announced your disconnection mm. and when you'll reconnect. So your partner doesn't have to be insecure, understands what's happening and can, great, go honey, I can't wait to see you when you return. Mm. That way, both partners are getting their emotional vitamins, they're getting what they need because they need different things and you'll do so much better. So if I was to boil it all down into the two best pieces of advice, that's what it would be. Which could all be summed up with one word, which is communicate. And in general, right. And so what does that mean in terms of behavior? Uh, That's what I tried to get it down to. Did you, as you started, did you ever envision you would end up an editor? (laughs) No, I had no interest or desire or thought that editing would be my thing. I just wanted to make movies. I wanted to be around movies. I love movies. And I loved people laughing. My dad was really funny and he made people laugh all the time. And I I wanted to be like my dad, right? And make people laugh. But I'm not a comedian. It's not my thing. It's not, you know, we all have a strength and you have to find your strength and and then practice it until you become the best at it, right? Malcolm Gladwell, put your 10,000 hours in, become the best. And then you'll get people will start offering you jobs to do that thing. People started offering me jobs to edit for them once they saw the editing I was doing on my own projects. It stood out to them because editing comedy is especially difficult compared to other forms of editing. And there are reasons for that I discovered and I put it in my book. Um, But I found I was good at it. Okay. People thought I was good at it. And so that's jobs kept coming in. And it's such a great 
job. It's a way I can be creative daily editing and it's enjoyable. I work with funny people. I get to laugh all the time. And it, I've, I, it kept editing captured my heart. Uh, editing is easy, easily the best part of movie making. Would, would, wouldn't you say so, Gil? It's being in the editing suite. It's, 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 it's well, more that's where satisfying. All the I mean, everything, everything that you prep for in a movie is geared towards what's going to happen in the editing room. Yeah. And everything you're going to shoot or not shoot or decide you need more of something has to do with the implication of what's going to happen in the editing room. So, yeah, I mean, it all it, to, to me, for, for me, it's always been music. I, I always approach, as you know, Alan, every time I've directed anything, I spend agonizing time trying to figure out what's the music, what's the what's the style of the music? Is it is it Louis Armstrong in the 20s or is it or, or is it contemporary or is it hip hop? And and that gives me something to hang on to when I'm trying to formulate whatever it is we're we're writing or directing, and and but but the editing it's all it, it just that's where it all ends up that's where it all comes together, um, either in a good way or a bad way. It it's where movies actually happen. It, it's there's a very famous story about Ralph Rosenblum when he was editing uh, uh, Annie Hall, uh, and and prior to. It, before Rat Ralph sat down and really edited the movie, apparently it was a, a mess. There was no shape to it whatsoever. And he was the one who suggested the the uh, the stand-up bits here and there, the just as a way to link the whole thing together to give it some kind of structure. And really, as the well, the the, the director who we cannot speak of anymore, uh, but when he got his uh, Academy Award, really it should have gone to Ralph Rosenblum because mm-hmm. really Ralph made that movie happen. Yeah. It, it was a mess before Ralph touched it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, the argument I make in my book, Cut to the Monkey, is that you should be a filmmaker who edits, not an editor who cuts films. Yeah. You should be adept at all the aspects of storytelling because the editor is making the final rewrite of the script. And so you should choose your editor as well as, as carefully as you choose your screenwriter. Because you're trusting them with your story. Yeah. Alas, you you cannot write a script the way that it would be cut. It, it it would it would be it would be an insane jumbled mess. Uh, it, it's where writing really is is at best it's the floor plan for what is to come. And when all the pieces are there, it is really in the in the editing that the house comes together. Here's uh, the metaphor Alec Berg used. Uh, he's a creator of Barry. And uh, I worked with him on Curb Your Enthusiasm, and he was he was on Silicon Valley. He said, the script is the recipe. You write the recipe for making some delicious dinner. That's the script writing process. Then production is shopping at the store, getting the items and the elements and the things you need. Sometimes they're sold out of one thing, so you can't get it. you got to do you got to get something else. So you get as much of what's on the list as possible. Mm-hmm. Now you hand the recipe. And all the ingredients yeah. to the chef, and the editor is the chef. Yeah. Okay. Are you going to choose that chef carefully, or you give that to just any chef? Right. The chef's kind of important to the process. The editor is the organizing principle. <laughs> and you tend to find editors are—they're uh, kind of a quiet bunch. They're not really vocal. You don't hear a lot about them because to be a good editor, part of the recipe is you have to be able to get along with everybody and withstand 
people's tempers and tantrums and emotional ups and downs, and you have to support them emotionally, and you've got to be there and kind of be the cheerleader. This is going to work out. We're going to figure it out. So they're kind of easygoing, reliable personalities. It's, it's a necessary element for the editing room. Yeah, but I find that they're constantly analyzing, re regrouping that that puzzle. Can I fight the pu this piece here and put it over there? And this and what's the emotional integrity that I'm trying to accomplish by doing it this way or doing it that way? Part of their quiet part, uh, demeanor really has to do with what that is and what they're really thinking about. Yeah, I feel I, I often give use the example of like Rain Man in a box of matchsticks. You have to be good at knowing where all you know where all those pieces go, or how many pieces have you got? What does it mean? Uh, an editor named Ivan Ladizinski put it this way. He said when I asked him how he chooses the pieces, he says the footage tells me what to do. I look at it and then I know where to put pieces. Yeah. His brain is in, designed in such a way that he can put puzzles together. Yeah, and, and it's na a natural part of who he is. But part of putting it together is also imagining, okay, we're going to dissolve from here to there. The music cue will start here before the, the cut and then and we'll drop it here. And this sound will will, will, will blend across there. Uh, you know, there's you have to think on so many levels, so many it's it really it's multidimensional thinking for hours on end. Right. Music. Exactly. You can ruin something with the wrong music. Yeah. Everything's great, but the music ruins it. Or you can go to that next level. I mean, my process is to finish a scene or a cut without music and make it work on its own without the music. Then bring the music in to amplify the emotions yeah. that are there. Ken Burns told me that he does the opposite. He will record the music first yeah. and then yeah. start editing to the, the music, music he loves <laughs> well hey it works and and certainly you, you it, it makes where to cut pretty well it's on that beat or it's on that counter beat it tugs the audience forward like nothing else there isn't a, an absolute there are just ways to get there in, into you're yeah. looking you want an emotional reaction from an audience right either anger laughter or tears i or all three the greatest movies have all three and however you get there there are different paths and there are ways that work better than others but that's the goal. You can take the same bits of information and depending upon how you arrange them, this first, second, third, fourth, the same story can be a mystery, can be a comedy, it can be a drama. Terms of Endearment is one of my favorite examples because it's gut-wrenchingly emotional and serious and hilariously funny. Yeah. And it makes you angry too. And it's that's the perfect mixture. Yeah. Recently, I saw a film called Riders of Justice starring Mads Mikkelsen. Mm. which is an action film, right? But it's got really serious moments and existential concepts. And it's really funny. It's the funniest comedy I've seen in years um, as well. And so that blend is brilliant. One last question for you, Roger. How do you cut funny? <laughs> Faster. It's no matter, no matter how the writer envisioned it or wrote it or the editor or the director directed it or the actors thought it should be generally it's all it always should be faster yeah, yeah. and <laughs> i'm cutting out the pauses the ums the you knows the, the the breathing like some shows like veep nobody ever breathes it's non-stop talking because uh billy wilder was the template yeah. from a movie yeah. like one two three yeah 
where, you know, James Cagney was just nonstop and it's hilarious. Now, there are other shows like The Office that I worked on or uh, Better Call Saul is a best example or Breaking Bad where there's lots of pauses. Mm. But they've earned the right to have pauses because at any moment, extreme violence can break out is what we're taught as the viewer. And so the pause. Those are like pinter pauses uh, in the theater. I mean, the pinter pauses were filled with. (laughs) But they're earned. You have to earn those pauses. My job is generally to remove all the unnecessary pauses. And so when there is a pause, it's because it itself is an emphasis. Yes. You have imparted so much wisdom in, uh, in, 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 in an think, hour and a half. It, it, it almost seems people should should be pouring money onto our heads collectively. We've, we've answered the <laughs> questions about the universe, about marriage, and about how to make a funny movie. Well, what more do you want from life, people? Well, I think I, I think I don't think this is a consolation, but I said, but I've been married happily for thirty years to the same woman, and and I've never been anything but heterosexual. But had I met you thirty five years ago. <laughs> I'm not sure I I would have gone the same route, and and I, I mean that as a compliment in, in the nicest way. <laughs> this was very informative and very instructive, and I think our audience will gain a lot from Boy. listening to what you have to say. Well, can you tell me what is you know uh, I asked this a lot too when I was making the documentary. How did you hold it together for 35 years going on going strong? I, I don't. You're about I to be in the sequel, Gil. Yeah, that'll, <laughs> which I would love to do. I think I think we should do a sequel with you. What's your secret? What? How do you two uh, hold it together? What? I, do you I have one? No, I don't know. It just just sort of happened. I mean, we're still you know very much into each other and care about each other, and and it keeps going. You haven't killed each other yet. I haven't killed each other. Came close a few times, but then we got, <laughs> we got through it. <laughs> A friend of mine said, I love asking that question. A friend of mine, when I asked him, he said, you know, one day I realized it's just cheaper to keep her. <laughs> uh, yeah, attrition, one way or the other. Ultimately, that uh, that, that wins the game. Uh, again, thank you so much for, for spending time with us, Roger. And uh, thank of course, you, thank you, everyone. And we'll we'll see you next time. The How Not to Make a Movie podcast is executive produced by me, Alan Katz, by Gil Adler, and by Jason Stein. Our artwork was done by the amazing Jody Webster, and Jason Jody, along with Mando, are all the hosts of the fun and informative Dads from the Crypt podcast. Follow them for what my old pal, the Crypt Keeper, would have called terrific Crypt content.